Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to have Dr. Jill Bayan with us this morning, and she's going to be introduced to us by Dan Albert. She will be talking uh, at some point about an off-label use of some pharmacologic agents and otherwise uh, just one, right? Next to uh, and uh, she will uh, also demonstrate on her second slide uh, some research funding and other potential uh, funding. I think you have a second slide that has your conflicts. Okay, very good. Good morning. Um, I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Jill Bayan, Professor of Medicine and Chairperson of the uh, Rheumatology Division at New York University School of Medicine. Um, Dr. Bayan received her medical degree at Albert Einstein um, and was elected to Alpha Omega Alpha. Um, she completed her uh, residency at Bronx Municipal Hospital, which is part of Albert Einstein, and then went to NYU where the, um, and uh, has remained there, um, rising to, to a tenured professor in 2006. Um, she was recently appointed the director of the rheumatology division, uh, which is one of the strongest in the country. Dr. Bayan is an outstanding investigator, publishing over 200 papers um, in rheumatology journals, but also in uh, some elite uh, investigational journals, such as JCI, JEM, uh, PNAS, um, uh, J and uh, New England Journal. And she's uh, garnered a number of awards, including the Kirkland Scholar Award, Distinguished Clinical Investigator of the American College of Rheumatology, the Evelyn Hess Lifetime um, Achievement Award for Research in Lupus, and is a member of several prestigious uh, societies. The principal focus of her research is on lupus and neonatal lupus, and she is going to discuss that with you today. Dr. Bayan has been a leader in this very difficult area of clinical research and has uh, two ongoing NIHR01 grants related to this. Um, she's been responsible for some of the largest trials in lupus, including the Salinas study. In addition to being an outstanding investigator, she's an excellent clinician, and I personally refer my most difficult um, pregnancy patients to her. <laughs> so right. please help me in welcoming Dr. Bayan. figure out the on button, we'd be in great shape. I got it. So I, I'm really honored to be here and uh, just feel like I came from one lecture to another because my true mentor, Dr. Michael Lockshin, really is the grandfather of lupus and pregnancy. So I'm kind of on a high having lectured last night in New York and here we are. So it's one continuum. So in facing the challenges of lupus pregnancy, I can assure you it goes beyond the physiologic change and craving for pickles. Um, so for me, I'm acknowledged not a morning person. I'm an evening person. I'm still on the evening. But why you need to stay awake during this lecture? You are called by your obstetric colleague at 3 AM to offer advice on a 23-year-old African-American female with a history of lupus nephritis, currently 26 weeks pregnant with a pounding headache, high blood pressure, and proteinuria. A patient seeks your advice on the use of anticoagulation for a low titer antiphospholipid antibody when she becomes pregnant. And finally, an asymptomatic mother is just told 
at 20 weeks of pregnancy that she's carrying a fetus with complete heart block and wonders why she has been diagnosed with lupus. So before we start pregnancy, we like to talk about preconception counseling. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is in a lupus patient. When you're at a clinic like Bellevue, that's not always possible. But I really would emphasize this is where it begins, and you have to make that point to the patient. We advise remission for 6 to 12 months. Definition of remission is interesting. It could be an entire lecture. But it really is as good as the patient can be, and I'll show you some parameters. Change in medications appropriate for safety in pregnancy. For example, to remember to discontinue the ACE and the ARBs, mycophenolate, there are drugs that are absolute no-nos in pregnancy. And then I almost always encourage pregnancy. It's a very important thing for women. I think you understand that. But there are three places or conditions in which I strongly discourage pregnancy. A creatinine greater than two, not because the creatinine will get worse, but because it is so highly associated with the complications such as preeclampsia, eclampsia, and help. Previous arterial thromboses scare me. If somebody's had a heart attack, I'm scared that they get pregnant. Now, of course, there's anticoagulation, but I'm scared, and I express that to the patient. And lastly, I'm most scared, in fact, terrified, of pulmonary hypertension. And for our patients who've had pulmonary hypertension, that's where we have seen maternal deaths. So this may not project so well, and I actually stole this slide from a woman named Natalie Cosadella in France. But we're going to try today to link the bench to the bedside in addressing the triple threat of pregnancy in women with systemic lupus. And the triple threat at the bedside really have three components. And I explained these same to the patients. The maternal component, which is really, how am I going to do during pregnancy? And in that regard, it usually relates to disease activity and a particular spotlight on renal. Well, how's my placenta going to be? Well, patients don't usually ask that, but that is a component <laughs> that may not relate to their own health. And there we run into all the problems of poor pregnancy outcome. But then there's the fetal component, which, as I will discuss later, relates perhaps only to an autoantibody the mother might not have even known she had and can, in some respects, be independent of her own health. So from the bench, I'll draw from some serologies, certain autoantibodies that track the two. And I generally don't review the literature all that well, I admit it. But I love to share data that I've really been a primary part of. And what I will show you today are examples of utilizing databases, big studies, to give us information. So if you fall asleep, these are the basics. <coughs> SLE pregnancies are always high risk. Don't take anything for granted in a lupus patient. Preterm birth, preeclampsia, and premature rupture of membranes are increased, and I will show you data on that. Pregnancy loss is increased in women with active lupus or antiphospholipid antibodies. And lupus flares can occur in any trimester and are often treated with prednisone. So kidney disease in lupus, and we'll get into this a little later on, but again, the basics. A previous history of lupus nephritis, currently inactive, and normal renal function, good news. And I'll, again, support that. Moderate to severe renal insufficiency, on the other hand, hypertension, preeclampsia, very high rate of fetal loss, but further renal deterioration is uncommon. So I'll start with the largest database, mostly unpublished, but I think 
This is where we will have most of our answers about pregnancy and guidelines. This is called the PROMISE study, initiated in 2003. It's, over a it's about a decade. The principal investigator is Jane Salmon. It's called Predictors of Pregnancy Outcome, Biomarkers and Antiphospholipid Syndrome and SLA. And the patients are divided into four groups. Group one, only with antiphospholipid antibodies. Group two, lupus and antiphospholipid antibodies. Group three, SLE. And group four, healthy. And I'll draw upon this 10-year experience <coughs> to really push forward or promote some guidelines. So our target enrollment for this study was really very ambitious of 700. Completed pregnancy, and this is actually about six or seven months ago. It's been dynamic, and we're even further than that now. So there is a huge experience to draw from in this prospective study. I'm going to focus today largely on lupus, but give you some of the data from the APL-only group. The study design, it's a prospective observational study. In other words, it's not a trial. We don't have any interventions. The inclusion criteria from the lupus perspective is that you would meet more, either or more than four ACR, or American College of Rheumatology, criteria for lupus. I'm sure you've reviewed that in other lectures. Obviously, appropriate age. And the reason there was a restriction on the hematocrit is that we draw 10 tubes of blood on these patients almost every month. And that was accepted by our obstetric colleagues and by the patients. The exclusion criteria are very interesting. These were the exclusion criteria we would apply to someone that we would give advice to about getting pregnant. So that's good. And therefore, a lot of what I'm going to say and conclude is restricted to the less sick patients. Now, that may have been a mistake, but one of the reasons why we did that was because we wanted to identify markers that would predict poor outcome that wouldn't just be actionable to lupus activity. So if you were on prednisone greater than 20 milligrams, if you had proteinuria greater than a gram, if you had diabetes um, antedating pregnancy, hypertension at the time you came in that couldn't be controlled, and a multi-fetal pregnancy. So these were the exclusions. And these, in many ways, mirror what we say to patients about getting pregnant. Notice there was no serologic exclusion. So sky-high DNA, low complement, that would have been acceptable. Our evaluation, patients were enrolled at less than 12 weeks. They saw rheumatologists every three months and when they would flare, and the bloods were obtained monthly. And we did what was called a slep day on patients. It's a disease activity measure designed to deal with some of the physiologic changes of pregnancy. So just to introduce, to think about a flare in a lupus patient, you have man, you have woman, you have pregnant woman. And some of the changes there are different, and we wanted to be careful not to attribute physiologic changes of pregnancy to a lupus flare. So to keep in mind, that an inflammatory rash, yes, would be consistent with lupus, but you see cloasma, palmar erythema, postpartum alopecia. These shouldn't be confused with a lupus flare. Arthritis, of course, but you can have arthralgia, bland knee effusions. Michael Oxen was a great proponent of reminding us about that. New leukopenia should worry you. Change in platelets should worry you. Mild anemia should not worry you. Rise of the sed rate is normal in pregnancy. We don't generally follow sed rates in pregnancy. I know this may be hard for you to accept. But if you do, be in, keep this in mind. A rising tide of anti-DNA, always a little worrisome. Fever, worrisome. Fatigue, of course not. And from a pulmonary point of view, <coughs> progesterone induces a state of hyperventilation. And of course, you're going to be a little short of breath. But that's not to say 
It's pain on inspiration. And these are clear distinctions. With that in mind, how did these patients do who were stable when they came in? And the data are, to me, remarkable, considering that really two decades ago, we told lupus patients, never get pregnant. So here you are. The frequency and timing of mild moderate flares in 333 SLE patients. So you can see that mild moderate flares occurred in less than 20% of the patients, fairly evenly divided between the second and third trimester. Severe flare occurred almost in nobody. And I think this was remarkable. And these were patients, I didn't really show you all the different graphics, who, as I'll show you in a moment, had history of renal disease, had DNA antibodies. These are the real deal. And so this is remarkable that a patient in remission can do so well. In fact, when we studied oral contraceptives, that was the one claim to fame in New England Journal of Medicine, where we were evaluating oral contraceptive safety in women with lupus. And actually, it was really safe. We had more mild, moderate flares and severe flares than in this pregnancy study. So what were the risk factors that were significantly associated with flares? So for example, interestingly, age, being slightly younger, being more active at baseline, this is an activity measure. And four is often used as a cut to say someone is active versus completely inactive. So patients could be active, but they couldn't have proteinuria or beyond greater than 20 milligrams of prednisone. But they could have active arthritis, for example, skin disease, um, and even some cytopenias. So that being a little bit more sick at baseline, not surprising. And the physician's global assessment, also not surprising, that these would be predictors of flare. But you'll notice, interestingly, there isn't complement, there isn't anti-DNA. Somewhat surprising to us. Now, how did these patients do? And this is really, in a way, the crux of the matter. Patients did well for themselves. They were well when they started. Now, I gave a le this lecture about two years ago in an ACR abstract, and it's funny. I thought at the time, gee, only 19% of patients had a bad outcome. And some reporter came up to myself and Jane Salmon and said, one out of five, you think that's good? Because the title of ours was great, because we were used to something really awful. But I might remind you, this maybe this really is awful, and we need to do better. And so if we look at lupus, there's 333 patients, healthy in this group, the group four, were very healthy. They had had two pregnancies, no autoantibodies. We chose a group that would be a comparator of almost over-healthy individuals. And what you can see is that any outcome, and I'll, these are the different outcomes, occurred in about 19% of the patients compared to healthy, which was about 3.5%. Fetal deaths were, thankfully, rare. Neonatal deaths, even more rare. Indicated preterm birth at about 10%. Very small for gestational age, the same. But interestingly, preeclampsia came in at around 8 to 10%. And you may say, gee, that's not bad. But it really is a problem when you compare it to the 3% in the population. So why was that happening? So if you look at a multivariate logistic regression model for predicting adverse pregnancy outcome, not surprisingly, a previous history of nephritis came in, antiphospholipid antibodies. Again, a physician thinking you were a little sicker when you started. And here, a low C3 emerged. And that was a diverse pregnancy um, outcome anytime. Again, a bad outcome after 20 weeks. Some of the very similar players. But the complement 
actually dropped off this analysis. So I'm going to turn now, and I'll have a little summary of all this in a bit. The real critical concerns in most of our minds in taking care of patients with lupus and pregnancy is counseling them regarding renal disease. So the questions that we would pose are, do pregnancy, does pregnancy increase the risk of first-time renal involvement? In patients with previous renal disease, does pregnancy raise the likelihood of a renal flare? And are patients, particularly those with past renal disease, who are clinically stable yet serologically active, defined as anti-DNA and low complements, are they at risk of a renal flare? Because people often ask, again, how do you define remission? And we thought this was a great database to ask that question. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm sure you'll all get this right, and we can leave now or skip to the next section. A 22-year-old black female with lupus and a history of diffuse glomerulonephritis in remission for the last year is currently 33 weeks pregnant. She's feeling well, but has noticed some ankle swelling as she experienced with her kidney flares. Her blood pressure is 140 over 92. She has three-plus pedal edema. Her urine analysis reveals no cells. Creatinine is 0.6. Uric acid is high, I might add, for pregnancy at 5.4. Anti-DNA is persistent. Complements are normal. 24-hour protein is one gram. The most likely diagnosis is, raise your hands, exacerbation of lupus nephritis. No hands. Physiologic proteinuria due to increased renal plasma blood flow. Raise your hand. So everybody got it right. It's C. Excellent. Or else you just <laughs> have not admitted it to me. OK. Well, in thinking about this, I hope there, I'm not offending any nephrologists in the audience, but one really needs to think about the normal renal physiology of pregnancy and the potential impact that can have on lupus nephritis. The kidney play, play a major role in adapting to pregnancy and the needs of the fetus. Renal hemodynamic adjustments include marked vasodilatation and a normal decrease in blood pressure. So if you don't see a decrease in the second trimester, you got a little worried about that. There's an increase in renal blood flow by up to 80% above baseline, increase in GFR by about 50%. In contrast, decreased tubular reabsorption of protein. And all this means you're going to excrete more protein naturally. So if somebody has a history of membranous nephritis, you have to decide, is that increase in proteinuria a physiologic change that's exaggerating, or is it active lupus nephritis or preeclampsia? And you retain sodium. But the implication is that increased proteinuria in a patient with previous nephritis may reflect physiologic change in pregnancy and not necessarily a lupus flare. And that is a very important point, because we don't want to give steroids unnecessarily. So this is a, a systematic literature review of pregnancy outcomes in women with lupus and a meta-analysis of the association of lupus nephritis with adverse pregnancy outcomes. It was a huge study, included 37 studies, 12 prospective, 26 retrospectives. The outcomes in these patients who had previous nephritis, and some of them were active, 16% hypertension, 16% had a renal flare, but again we see preeclampsia, eclampsia in about one out of 10 of these patients. The conclusion of this that you can read yourself was that active lupus nephritis increases the risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes, particularly premature birth and hypertension. These findings support current recommendations calling for avoidance of pregnancy until all manifestations of nephritis are quiescent. And I think that is a very important point, but again, 
how low should your proteinuria go? And does that involve or implicate serologic activity? So we went back, or are or in the PROMISE study, to actually address some of that, those points. It turned out, and again, to reassure you, these were real lupus patients, a third of these, this is now a newer analysis. That's why the 333 became 390. 390 um, lupus patients enrolled. Renal disease was defined as ACR criteria. So one out of three of these patients had a history of lupus nephritis. And <coughs> kidney biopsies were um, evaluated in 83. And you can notice in yellow, not to go over the different classes and belabor that, but these patients had serious renal disease from class 3, 4, and 5. And some of them with a combination of 3 and 5, which is really a rather dangerous combination. And notice one person actually had a kidney transplant. So what were the medications? And this just brings up a quick point about medications. You cannot use mycophenolate during pregnancy. And many of you know this is a cornerstone of treatment of lupus nephritis now, and really, in many ways, has decreased, or our, I wouldn't say eliminated, of course, but decreased our need to use cyclophosphamide. And if we were talking about cyclophosphamide, I would not be giving a talk about lupus in pregnancy, because it is associated with permanent sterility taken over years. At any rate, azathioprine is relatively, uh, safe is a scary word, and I can remember 20 years ago saying it was totally unsafe. But transplant literature has supported that azathioprine is relatively safe to use during pregnancy. Yes, you might wonder why one person snuck in with MMF, um, wasn't on it for very long, and it didn't go well. Um, obviously, no one on cyclophosphamide. But what I'm showing is you, people were on cytoxin previously, again, saying this is a real patient cohort. You'll notice hydroxychloroquine, and we'll, we'll get into that. That's, I think, the drug that was referred to as being off-label, and I'll, we'll discuss that later. So the baseline clinical status for these patients was defined in two ways. And it's really the same way that we think about clinical trials in lupus. How do you know that you've gotten better when you've had renal disease? And we often define it based on protein excretion. And in, if loosely, <clears throat> again, complete remission would be protein excretion less than 500 milligrams, protein creatinine ratios best over 24 hours, sometimes a spot. We didn't really mandate that, because that's not what the study was about. And partial remission between 5 and 1,000, because you remember, over 1,000, you weren't included. But these were how we split it up. And a renal flare was considered an <coughs> increase of protein greater than 500 milligrams per day, with or without hematuria or red cell cast. And again, as a teaching point, you don't necessarily have to see an active sediment to have active nephritis. And I think that's important to bear in mind. At any rate, how did these people do? Those people that had um, overall in the study, astoundingly, only 19 had renal flares. But they came, as you might have expected, from the group with previous renal disease happening in the second or third trimester. The best news. If you had no previous history of renal disease, it was really, I mean, amazingly rare. Only 3-1% of patients developed new lupus nephritis by becoming pregnant. This is probably the greatest pearl you can take home to your patients. Because everyone is always worried, if I get pregnant, will I get renal disease? And I think you can say to somebody, no, you probably won't. Now, if you look at the data split a little bit by those that came in with complete remission, that's less than 500, 
versus those that came in with 500 to 1,000, you can see that those that came in complete remission, very few flared again. And so we always have the, the mantra, and I'm sure Dan concurs, trying to get the proteinuria less than 500 milligrams. And so again, in our counseling, this further supports that getting or starting at that point is beneficial to our patients. But to address the serology, I mean, many of you know the long tradition of NYU is we're very um, serologically centric. We always worry about DNA and low complement. It's in our blood. And so I couldn't help but dig into this database to ask that question. So what about the baseline serologic status of the patients with previous renal disease and the development of renal flares? Well, what you can see, to kind of cut to the chase, is that if you had both anti-DNA and low complement, 17.2% um, had a flare. But if you had neither, about 8.5%. So there was a difference, and maybe we were underpowered. And I acknowledge that. It might have been a type 2 error. But in general, the serologies didn't really predict flare. And so if somebody comes in with a high DNA and low complement and has no proteinuria but had a previous history of renal disease, I am much less worried than I might have otherwise been. And similarly, for the non-renal patients, in this case, it really didn't make much of a differentiation. So the translational implication is that this large multi-center, multi-ethnic prospective study provides reassurances for physicians counseling patients with previous renal disease. In agreement with available literature, patients in complete or partial remission have a low risk of renal flare, even in the presence of abnormal serologies. Advising against pregnancy for those with persistent serologic activity, but, not, but clinical quiescence, is probably not warranted, but trends may require further study. And I think these are our take-home points. Lupus flares are extremely infrequent in pregnant patients who are clinically stable at conception. but the risk of poor outcome is still unacceptable, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Mild, moderate, and severe flares are infrequent in patients clinically stable at baseline, despite anti-DNA antibodies or prior renal disease. New onset renal disease during pregnancy occurs rarely in patients with no previous history of renal disease. And in patients with a previous history of renal disease, renal flares occur in less than 15% of patients who were either in complete or partial remission at conception. So a, another study, which looked at patients in the same way, came to similar conclusions. Low risk of renal flare in women with lupus nephritis in remission who conceived after switching from MMF to azathioprine. And we really didn't get into that switch. In some cases, a patient's in remission for three years on MMF, you may abandon the drug altogether. In other cases, where somebody is between 500 and a gram, it's been only two years, patient's very anxious, they're 39 years old, you would make the switch from MMF to azathioprine. And what this study basically tells you is that you can go do that. Patients who are on MMF switched to aza. Then there were, th were three renal flares in these patients. But before they got pregnancy, once they got pregnant, they actually did relatively well. Except you'll notice, once again, this little bit about preeclampsia, and in this case coming from those that were on azathioprine initially. But again, that's where that little hint just keeps coming back at us. So, I've set the stage, what is preeclampsia? Hypertension is a hallmark of preeclampsia. Systolic blood pressure 140 or diastolic 90 on two occasions, four hours apart, plus one of the following. Proteinuria, now this proteinuria definition is really loose. For us, 
a rheumatologist taking care of lupus patients. We don't even understand how loose this is. But it's a pretty loose definition of proteinuria, as you can see, 300 milligrams per 24 hours. Thrombocytopenia and pulmonary edema. Severe preeclampsia, which goes by the term HELP syndrome, and you do need help, is a microangiopathy. Hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. It carries a very high maternal mortality. So let's talk a little bit about um, vascular remodeling during pregnancy. And preeclampsia is really a disease of angiogenic dysregulation. So this is um, the trophoblast during normal placental development requires the expression of angiogenic <coughs> growth factors. For example, vascular growth factor, or VEGF, which promotes the um, development of the placenta. And here you see VEGF binding to its receptor. And that's very nice. And, and that's what we consider a physiologic situation. However, excess, so this can be cleaved. And you can get excess soluble VEGF R1. And excess soluble VEGF R1, which is a product of alternate splicing, inhibits placental cytotrophoblast differentiation and invasion and contributes to abnormal pl placentation associated with preeclampsia and IUGR. And it also turns out that if you activate the complement system, as shown by Jane Salmon, and get to C5A, it also induces the soluble VEGF to be secreted by mononuclear cells. So what insights might angiogenic factors provide with regard to lupus and preeclampsia? This is actually one of the main points of the study. And Jane Salmon presented this slide at a plenary session at our recent ACR. And it tells quite a story. And what you're looking at here is a rise of soluble VEGFR, which is the same thing as soluble FLIP1, which has been reported in the New England Journal of Medicine by Karamaji and others to predict preeclampsia. Is that true in SLA? And indeed, it is. And what you can see, I think this is a little bit small. Um, this is SLE uh, patients or with APL who had preeclampsia less than 34 weeks. That's a very severe condition, just to point out. So here you see the soluble levels. Up is bad. Just keep that in mind. And slope, a hot, steep slope is also bad. But what is remarkable is these patients who are already differentiating from those that did well or healthy uh, patients or the patients with lupus who did well, already you're seeing differentiation of these curves right at 12 to 15 weeks. And the hope is that rising levels would help us predict the patients with the poorest outcome. And I think this to be followed up, but it's pretty powerful on its own right. And I, I think we're going to look at complement activation and this and be able now to address those at the greatest risk with biomarkers. So let's talk about an application. I call this the transferred patient. I think you've all had that experience. And at Bellevue, we really have that experience. 23-year-old black female with a history of two spontaneous abortions transferred from an OSH, that's an outside, at 28 weeks of pregnancy for evaluation of worsening renal function. She was originally seen in prenatal care at, at 10 weeks gestation, at which time she was found to have a creatinine of 1.2 and proteinuria. And no diagnosis was given. She was followed closely, oh yeah, as an outpatient, until the routine labs revealed a creatinine of 2.9. And she was admitted. She was started on solumedrol, transferred to Bellevue Hospital for further care. Was this preeclampsia? Was this lupus nephritis? Or was this both? 
So on day one, 28 weeks, uh, her blood pressure was normal. Her urine analysis showed red cells. Her urine to protein creatinine ratio was 5.7. Her creatinine was 2.9. Her uric acid was off the charts. Her DNA was likewise off the charts, and her complements were in the floor. And we would have thought, gee, this is clearly lupus nephritis. And I said, oh my god, I think we should deliver this patient. I was really worried, and I was completely ignored. Interestingly, the soluble flip was abnormal. So you were kind of thinking, hmm, maybe both. Appropriately, because this really did look like lupus nephritis to us. And preeclampsia doesn't usually cause renal compromise. So we boldly, we, they, treated with IV pulse steroids, which is a little scary when you consider you might be moving toward preeclampsia, and, but the blood pressure was OK. And fascinatingly, there was no IUGR. At 29 weeks, we added, which was shortly thereafter, azathioprine was added. And notice the inching up of the blood pressure. Not much change in the proteinuria. Creatinine comes down only ever so slightly. And uric acid is now on the rise. And finally, in many ways, it was probably a good thing for the patient. At 30.5 weeks, her blood pressure zooms right up. Yet, yet, you'll notice lovely decrease in her anti-DNA antibodies, and her soluble flit now pushes itself through the roof, although there were early markers here. At that point, thank God, delivery and a renal biopsy substantiated, in fact, the coexistence of lupus nephritis, and the patient was treated with mycophenolate and did remarkably well. So we've learned a few things. These can coexist, one can lead to the other, and the treatments may actually not be the same. So how do you kind of think of this if you have a little guideline at the bedside? Because this is really where you're going to get called. And this is the place that's going to make you the most anxious it does me. So these are some of the parameters that you can utilize. I mean, in medicine, we know nothing is perfect, and guidelines sometimes don't apply at all. But hypertension, without hypertension, you're not dealing with preeclampsia. You're probably dealing with lupus nephritis if someone comes in with proteinuria. <clears throat> Proteinuria, but it doesn't help you. I had a patient with 20 grams of protein. She had preeclampsia. So you can't say, oh, just because it's so high, that's got to be it. Edema isn't helpful. Active sediment, very helpful. If you see red cell casts, you're home free. But many forms of lupus nephritis don't really show you sediment. Uric acid, I find that to be very interesting. And I, when I see high uric acid, I'm always thinking this person is destined to preeclampsia. It's actually a fairly good and inexpensive marker. The ANA, of course, would be absent in preeclampsia. But a young woman, a black woman coming in with preeclampsia, you should think ever so slightly in the back of your mind, maybe I should get an ANA. Could this be the first presentation of lupus? And indeed, it can. And you'll notice we haven't really talked about flares in the patient or presentation of lupus in pregnancy. Those are our sickest patients. But always think that. Anti-DNA is not a part of preeclampsia. Complements can sometimes be low in preeclampsia, generally not. And soluble flit may wind up to be very important in terms of predictions. Let's move on now to the placental component. This is a um, antiphospholipid antibodies. The fetal and embryonic death, when you have these antibodies, can be associated with um, well, pregnancy loss in 16 to 38% of pregnancies. They are highly associated with growth restriction and associated slightly more modestly with preeclampsia. So we again went back to the PROMISE study looking for 
the best biomarker to predict this condition, <coughs> that is, uh, pregnancy loss. And so in the two groups we've discussed, antiphospholipid antibodies were defined by having at least one of the following documented twice, at least, at least six weeks apart, one of which must be at the core lab during pregnancy. And that was an IgG um, cardiolipid antibody greater than 20, although we did change that to greater than 40, a lupus anticoagulant, or anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. And the table, the, this graph pretty much shows it all. The placental component, 19% of 144 patients who had APL, an adverse pregnancy outcome, that outcome was largely and almost exclusively driven by the presence of a lupus anticoagulant. So you can see these were, these were the groups that had both APL and lupus. This was APL only. In both groups, the driving force to adverse at pregnancy outcome was the presence of a lupus anticoagulant. That's your most powerful predictor of poor pregnancy outcome, whereas high titer anticardiolipid antibody without LAC or high titer antiphospholipid antibody without LAC, that's I think my little orange, those were not associated with poor pregnancy loss in this prospective study. So again, to keep that in mind. What do you do about this? Very controversial, a lecture in its own right, and I really, I think you could invite Mike Lockshin or Jane Salmon to come back and give that lecture, but our mainstay of therapy are generally low molecular weight and um, aspirin, which seem to be superior to aspirin alone in enhancing live births in patients with recurrent pregnancy loss and APL. And so you can just see from this meta-analysis, <clears throat> combination therapy resulted in many more live births, 74.27%. But you see, still, one out of four losing their babies, even with this combination of low molecular weight heparin and aspirin. And I can say, based on the soluble FLIT and our thinking about angiogenic dysregulation, I think where the field may go, if we could go boldly, would be to go with anti-C5A and anti complement therapies. And again, that's a whole story, but complement may also be fueling this as I showed you with C5A turning on the soluble FLIT. So no significant difference in preeclampsia, preterm labor, and birth weight were found between both the groups. Meta-regression using age at randomization, previous history of live births and episodes of miscarriages as covariates failed to predict the relative risk of a live birth. So we sort of go with, if you've had one loss, in the second trimester or, or later, we generally go with low molecular weight heparin at a prophylactic dose coupled to aspirin. But again, that's a discussion we can have afterwards. I turn now to really my favorite, well, actually favorite is not a good word to use, but um, an area that I've spent literally my own entire career and have enticed many others to spend their careers, <laughs> devoted to a very rare disease, but one that I think is informative on many levels. And this is a disease that is wholly dependent on maternal autoantibodies and independent of the maternal health of the patient. A very unique situation, which we call neonatal lupus. It's a pathologic readout of passively acquired autoimmunity. Quite fascinating. In the maternal <coughs> circulation, there's a generation of anti-Ramon <coughs> antibodies. The patient has these antibodies. But fascinatingly, some of these are not patients at all. A mother may have lupus, she may have Sjogren syndrome, or she may be totally, totally asymptomatic. 
These antibodies, like all good IgG antibodies, not IgM, doesn't cross the placenta, but all good, all any IgG antibodies cross the human placenta at about 10 weeks of gestation via FCRN. And two clinical features in the presence of Rho antibodies can occur. But these are extremely rare. And these features are cardiac, or congenital heart block, or cardiomyopathy, or cutaneous. The heart block has about a woman with anti-Rho antibodies, one out of 50, or 2%, will have a child with heart block if she's never had a previous child. And that rate, <coughs> as I'll mention later, goes up tenfold if she's had already one affected child. We now know, after years of evaluation, that this is not happening any time in pregnancy, but really is fairly pinpointed in the middle of the second, or middle to late second trimester. It is unique to the fetus. Mothers have these antibodies, and they have no cardiac problems. The disease is permanent, and I'll show you why that is, and there's a high morbidity and mortality. In contrast, this rash that you may see little babies on the elevator. You could ask that mother, she should be checked for raw antibodies. It's an innocent rash, but this rash, often confused with fungus, and this rash occurs sometimes at birth, but most often about six weeks, and it's UV provoked. So there seems to be a different mechanism, yet both mediated by raw antibodies. It is this rash that gave the global name neonatal lupus because it does have an adult counterpart, subacute cutaneous lupus. It, in contrast to heart block, is transient, disappearing with the clearance of the antibody by eight months of life, a perfect example of an antibody-associated problem in a passive recipient, and almost never scars. We're here, intense scarring at the histologic level. So, it's a rare disease that occurs in that heart block occurs in one in fifteen thousand, and we have spent a lifetime accumulating data on a rare disease. And I think that's how you have to study rare disease is to develop registries. It's only in that way that you can make headway. And so, after quite a long period of time, we now have almost six hundred children with neonatal lupus, with four hundred of them having the cardiac condition. And this really becomes very powerful for clinical and basic research. But what about the mothers? I kind of intimated in that beginning part when you were to stay awake, you're still hanging in. How about these asymptomatic mothers? These poor people, not only do they have a kid that's got a problem now, but they may have a problem. But first, don't tell this woman she has lupus. Because an antibody doesn't make it lupus. It's much more complicated than that. And we have to be careful not to say that. But on the other hand, <coughs> we need to screen these women for rheumatic diseases. And what is Interesting is anti-Rho antibodies, or a child with heart block, is an excellent predictor of future development of rheumatic disease. And this was 51 women in our particular series. The probability of an asymptomatic mother developing lupus by 10 years was 18.6%. But you can see here, at about four years, we have uh, this percent developing, staying asymptomatic, meaning that they develop some symptoms of rheumatic disease, dry eyes, Dry mouth, Sjogren's is highly associated with Rho antibodies, other cutaneous features, thrombocytopenias, some went on to renal disease. Lupus was more rare, but 50% will develop some symptoms, and this work was almost identically uh, confirmed in um, a group from France presenting their work in Argentina and recently at the ACR. So these women do need to be counseled. <clears throat> what about the clinical data? How does that support 
going to the, to the basics and understanding the pathogenesis. Well, one thing we know, based on the two percent, is that the antibody is not sufficient. It's required, but it's not sufficient. So we would suggest that means that there must be a contribution of fetal factors and environmental factors. And the fact that it happens skin and heart tells you that the tissue itself is playing a role because it has a discordant response. But the pathologic cascade to scarring, it's rapid. You can see I have an echocardiogram at 18 weeks, which was fine, and at 19 weeks, complete blot and death. Now, obviously, that's what we see clinically. What's happening pathologically is, is perhaps not as rapid. But most of the time, there are protective factors. Whatever happens, this process is kept in check. For a researcher, and I'm really not going to go over much of our, our basics today. Again, that's an entire lecture, because we have a huge basic science component. <laughs> the antigen that is the target of these antibody, Rho antibodies, are not located on the cell surface, which is a pain, right? They're located intracellularly. So either the antibody's got to cross a membrane, or that antigen has to come to the surface. We favor the latter. <clears throat> so the challenges are that the antibody is not itself sufficient. It must be complex. It only occurs in a small percentage. And we've got to deal with this intracellular target. Just to um, go back to slide basics, these are the candidate autoantigenic targets, 60 row, 52 row, and 48 law, not to get all crazy complicated with you, but an important feature is that two of these targets <clears throat> bind single-stranded RNA. And that will become interesting when we take this to the bedside. And that's 48 law, and the 60 have an RNA binding area. I'll also point out that 52 row is also evaluated for as a risk factor, and Marie Warren in Sweden has identified a region here which may, is an epitope that may be more highly seen in patients who have children with heart block, although we have not been able to confirm that data. And just because you hear about Rowan Law testing, I want to just give you a few pearls. The registry allowed us to look at blood during pregnancies from a woman who is pregnant with one child with heart block, gets pregnant again, and has a child that doesn't have heart block. This really is the most powerful way to address what antibody might or might not be responsible. So just to quickly summarize it, reactivity with this P200 of row 52 does not confer any added risk over evaluating full length row 52. For a mother with cardiac neonatal lupus, the frequency and titer of these antibodies are not informative. These titers don't change. And that's another mother says, well, if my numbers go down, I won't be at much risk. Tell her their numbers are not going to go down. We're sorry. No therapies make these numbers go down. Steroids have no effect on these at all. And although anti-Row52 and P200 are less than 50% specific, reactivity to P200 is least often false positive in mothers who've never had an affected child. Titer matters. Mothers with low titer anti-Row60 may require less stringent echocardiographic monitoring. So high titer Row60, and if you have 52 Row also, that is also part of the risk. But what you get commercially one doesn't know, different labs get different, and I can't really say, but most of the time, you're looking at a combination of row 60 and 52 if you're doing it on the BioFlex assay. You don't know which, but if it's positive, and it's greater than, and some labs greater than eight, this is much more associated. If it's one little smidgen over normal, that's usually not a high-risk patient. The problem is, most anti-row responses are very high titer in general. So the tissue is the issue. 
and we translate histologic clues to the pathogenesis and treatment. Fibrosis of the AV node is the major histologic finding. Fibrosis of the SA node and bundle of HIS, EFE, and valve changes are part of the spectrum. Early death associated with paternal antiviral law may be secondary to a global cardiomyopathy and not advanced block per se. And fascinatingly, mononuclear infiltrates are part of the signature lesion. And this is just to show you that fibrosis, where you would have seen the AV node, it's not there. This is all calcified and fibrotic. And here you have a multinucleated giant cell. And what I'm not showing you, though, I realized as I was putting the slides in, is another feature is remarkable persistence of apoptotic cells. Apoptotic cells should normally be cleared, and they're not in this condition. And we see them consistently on autopsy. And that actually may be the clue to the pathogenesis. So during normal physiologic remodeling, guess what happens? Intracellular antigens go to the cell surface. And again, this is years of research that I'm putting on one slide. That Roe and Law move to the cell surface and bring with them a little bit of that piece of RNA. Now, who expected a Roe antibody to get into their circulation? That wasn't really intended, right? But with apoptosis happening during physiologic remodeling, this provides the transport or the, you know, the cellular mechanism to put Rho at the cell surface. You might say, well, the cell's dead. Who cares? Apoptosis is always in areas where there are healthy cells. This is different than necrosis. And again, I didn't bring that slide. But what happens in this situation is you, with antibody binding, you create an immune complex. But this is a unique immune complex. And there's something interesting about the antigen, because it has SSRNA. Macrophage comes in, and again, there's a lot of data that just sort of I'm pushing and making it um, small and distilling it for you. Taking up that immune complex, macrophages often, there are scavengers. They eat apoptotic cells. Everybody's happy. It's cleared. But when they eat a meal coated with whipped cream like this, it could be very inflammatory. You really aren't expecting to take in via FC receptor, bring in an inflammatory load. Normally, that would not be the case. In doing so, this little RNA finds itself binding to the toll-like receptors, 7, 8 in this condition. And that really excites the macrophage, puts out pro-fibrosing cytokines, and then you transdifferentiate a fibroblast to a myofibroblast. TGF-beta plays a role in this. But to make a long story short, this signaling is dependent on acidification of the endosome. A drug called plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine inhibits that. We know that, and it's a mainstay of lupus. And we thought, wow, this is our experimental model. We threw in um, analogs of hydroxychloroquine, and the process stopped. So we thought, how could we bring that finding to the bedside? So just to tell you that pregnancy, uh, Plaquenil, this is the off-label. It's, it's not. Um, it's Plaquenil. Um, it receives FDA category C, however. There have been no congenital malformations reported in over 250 children studied, no hearing or visual abnormalities in a study of 58 exposed children. And importantly, it may prevent flares during pregnancy in mothers with lupus. So we've had a huge experience with this drug in pregnancy, as it were. So we decided to take a look at our database and see, gee, if we looked at recurrence rate, and there's a, a lot of data that, that went before this, the recurrence rate of this disease is about tenfold the initial incidence. So it's about 17 to 20% recurrence rate. And so we went back over the registry and asked, gee, 
who was on Plaquenil, who wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw a huge difference between the recurrence rate <laughs> for those not on Plaquenil versus those that were. And this was recently published by a junior investigator in circulation, but it led to really the question of a pro or the initiation of a prospective study. And this is where I'll, I'll sort of end. This is called the PATCH study. You notice a lot of P's here, PROMS, PATCH. Um, preventative approach to congenital heart block with hydroxychloroquine. It's open label. In a rare disease like this, it's very hard to have a control group. And we actually calculated we'd need 200 patients per arm to actually show a difference. So this was pretty impossible because the requirement was that a mother had to have a previously affected child. So again, taking it from rare to rarer. But the study design, which is open label, is a Simon's two-step optimal design. It's a great way to ask a question and see if your drug doesn't work, don't move any further on. So there are two steps to this in phase one, 19 patients to be enrolled. If less than three get advanced block, we'd move on to phase two. And the methods were weekly echoes, initiating hydroxychloroquine before 10 weeks, and the outcome, advanced block. And we looked at hydroxychloroquine levels and antibody titers along the way. Here are the data. We've actually completed step one in two or so years because of a registry. You have access to many patients. They're motivated. Their kids previously died. Uh, we didn't really discuss this. And this is the bottom line. So we've completed the pregnancies with one, one affected with heart block. And so our current status is one out of 20 recurrence, which is 5 or so percent compared to 17.5%. And we're moving on to the second phase. And we now have enrolled actually 28 patients still um, with one case of heart block. Whether this next four cases will get heart block or not, we can't say. And lastly, for those of you who do face a pregnant woman with anti-Rho antibodies, a little counseling. You need a rheumatologist. You need a fetal pediatric cardiologist. And I realize, whoa, where's the obstetrician? Yes, the obstetrician is important. But I think it's also important to emphasize your echo should probably be done by the pediatric cardiologist unless you have a really talented MFM, and you may have that here. Fetal echoes, we do a little bit um, incessantly, and I think we're going to probably cut back on that. But we do them starting at 16 to 18 weeks through 26 weeks. And because we now feel more confident with this vulnerable period, we're beginning to cut back almost completely after 26 weeks. Normal echoes, still, still get an EKG at birth, just to be safe, an echo you could throw in, to do it at one month of life. We've never seen any problem emerge at one year if we don't see it through the screening. But, you know, mothers get anxious. You might want to do that. But what happens if something is wrong? So we do measure PR interval. Two standard deviations is 140 milliseconds. You see that, like 145 or moderate tricuspid regurge. I would just do the echo the next day, the next day. And you may see that there's some bouncing around. But if that PR interval, which is consistent with first degree block, which we thought maybe that is a predictor of going to third degree block, turns out it may or may not really be. We might consider dexamethasone. Why dex and not prednisone? Just to remember from medical school, dex crosses the placenta. The fetus has a really, in, its, its liver is not adequate to activate the prednisone. So you're giving a steroid that'll 
go right through the 11 beta dehydrogenates of the placenta and remain active. And it's a, it's a cool trick that we can do. Um, if you see alternating second or third degree block, this might be a case to really consider dexamethasone. But notice, if you have complete block and nothing else, at this stage of the game, we do not suggest anything. We've never seen permanent reversal at this stage. And if things are really falling apart, people pull out IVIG, they pull out dex. This generally is, is um, a harbinger of mortality. So why is this important? And I end here. I think we always go back to the bedside. And Anna would tell you at age five, as she told all her kindergarten class, and then came home with the Tommy. They asked about the heart, and I told them, I don't have one. I have a pacemaker. <laughs> so it takes a village to do this kind of work. I hope that we have two seconds for questions. And um, thank you for inviting me. For a row positive mother, two percent, one out of fifty. Yeah, um, and and that seems there's literature that says as high as six percent and then low. And how confident are you in that um, that two percent? So I'm fairly confident. Um, I think the data are a little bit pushed on either side, and some people think if you have anti-law associated with anti-row, maybe your percentage goes up a little bit. But what difference does it really make? I mean, to me, if it's 1 out of 50, if it's 1 out of 60, it's still a fairly rare disease, but not so rare compared to the fact that women go for amnio when their chances are 1 out of 250. So 1 out of 50 may seem to be rare, but it's not so rare. And what uh, you, you've done some work on other factors that contribute to the risk beyond the SSA. So, I mean, I think those factors are genetic in part, and that is we know we're beginning to learn something about the genetics, and we think there may be polymorphisms, for example, in, in the TNF that may contribute to this. But again, we're really in our infancy with that. And other factors, again, actually minorities seem to do a bit worse. But the definition of other autoantibodies, which is this anti-Rho 52, in fact, may add only very little risk. And I think we're still in the same point that antibodies to row 60 are the most helpful, to be honest with you. Yeah? What about hydroxychloroquine and breastfeeding? OK, great story. Fine. So La Leche League approves it. Pediatrics approves it. Go right ahead. Continue. Do not stop Plaquenil for breastfeeding. Absolutely unequivocally. That was easy. <laughs> okay, so I actually, when I was younger, um, the first patient I ever saw, I thought, okay, plasmapheresis, and that is exactly what I did. So the baby uh, mother had row antibodies, uh, heart block at 20 weeks, and I began pheresis. Now, this is really interesting. To, these antibodies are in such high titer that to ferese off these antibodies, we got to an IgG level of 300. And we said, oh, God. And still, in those days, I was doing an octoloni plate. I could still detect the antibodies. So global phoresis is not really, it just doesn't work that way, unless you could do it specifically getting rid of the antibody. And so some of the research we've considered is having a 
close identification of the epitope, could we create a mimetope and use that approach in, in a molecular way to actually get rid of the antibodies just for this window of time? That would be, in our minds, no antibody, no disease. But that's not as easy as you think, because most autoantibodies recognize many, many epitopes along a protein. And it's not as easy as you might think. And so actually, we, we put in a grant to work on that with somebody who, who does HIV work. We'll, we'll see. Good thought. So a fetus uh, that's you know, developing, there are many cells that are undergoing apoptosis. Yep. Why the heart, right? Why the heart, yeah. Why? Okay, so we ask ourselves that every single day. And it is very clear that that's the predominant organ beyond the skin, although I didn't get a chance to tell you about the liver, which also can be affected but can, doesn't leave permanent, and, and maybe you don't know this, but most babies actually don't get a chem profile when they're born. So liver is also another probable dominant manifestation, but not the other tissue. So one interesting experiment that I actually did, and then happily a PhD reproduced it, we looked at cardiac fibroblasts versus pulmonary fibroblasts from the same fetuses. And I don't mean that they had heart block, but we got tissue um, from an elective termination. And we cultured the two different type of fibroblasts. And it was remarkable how more susceptible the cardiac fibroblast was to TGF-beta and some of the supernatants that we were generating in these co-cultured experiments. So one, it might be not every fibroblast is created equal. So that might be one. The other might be that, as you probably know, that area of the heart is probably working the hardest of any area in the body. And maybe part of that has to do with oxidative stress and where there may be hypoxia also pushing the effect. And then lastly, it may be that that's an area of most intense remodeling. Th these are theories. But these are plausible, and the heart can't regenerate. and so. This is where we're seeing things. Is that the answer? I don't know. But it is very specific to the heart. You're quite right. So I think, uh, thank you for thank you. taking us on this tour, sharing your passion. And thank you. Very much. Thank you.